Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. The Not-So-Minor Prophets, Part 6, Micah. He's the prophet that we're hearing from today, the prophet Micah. Pray with me if you would. Father God, in Jesus' name, we give you thanks for your word, for the scriptures, for the Bible. Lord, we need your help reading and understanding and applying what we understand from the Bible. Help us now as we together encounter your word, relying on the promises that you make concerning your word. There's a power here. It's the power to be renewed, to be transformed. And so we sign up for this transformation. Every single one of us, we proclaim our need for this renewal, this renewal that is brought about through your word, by your spirit. We say yes to that. We ask for that. We ask for what you want to have happen in our lives and in our hearts and in our relationships with you and with each other. We ask that you would be glorified by it all. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So what does it really mean to be forgiven? Forgiveness is an interesting word as it proceeds from either the, the minds or the mouths of human beings, sometimes it seems to me that it can be two different words with two different meanings. On the one hand, forgiveness means to let go or to put away, to release. Afiemi, that's the biblical Greek word for forgiveness. Say that. Afi Amy, Afi Amy, Afi Amy. Yeah, that's the word. Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Cross Cultural Apologetics and Missions. That's a pretty scary title. Wayne Detzler, he taught at Yale and is the Dean of Southern Evangelical Seminary. He says this In the New Testament, forgiveness comes from the Greek word Afi Amy. Literally, this means to send away or to put apart. Thus, the root meaning of forgiveness is to put away an offense. You put it away. You put it all away. Charles Spurgeon, that's a name you probably know from the 19th century, a preacher from England. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, forgive and forget. When you bury a mad dog, don't leave his tail above the ground. Ew, <laughs> right? <laughs> so the other version of the word forgiveness, when I hear that word coming from people, when they talk about it, it's clear to me that they are leaving the tail and maybe some of the rest of the dog that they claim to have buried well above ground. More often than not, it's the whole backside of that dog sticking way up out of the ground. It, it's like the thing we say we forgive ends up quoting Arnold Schwarzenegger from the Terminator movies saying, say it with me, I'll be back. So if it keeps sticking up, 
if it keeps coming back, well, then we're dealing with something less than or a departure from what the Bible means by the word forgiveness. In fact, it seems to me that the only one who really 100% of the time abides by the principle of what the word forgiveness actually means is God himself. And that's what we find in Micah. This is the great hope that Micah gives us after we read all seven chapters. The hope of forgiveness. It's the greatest hope of all. It's what we need the most, and we can only find it in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is directly pointed to by this prophet as the source for the hope of forgiveness. So I remember reading in the ESV Study Bible this description, and so I, I wrote it here to read to you. I think it's perfect for the theme of Micah. It says this, the theme of Micah is judgment and forgiveness. The Lord, the judge who scatters his people for their transgressions and sins, is also the shepherd king who in covenant faithfulness gathers, protects, and forgives them. There it is, kind of a perfect description, not just of Micah, but of all the prophets and really the Bible itself. There's the bad news, which is pretty bad. Doesn't get worse, really. And it's followed by, inexplicably, good news. Forgiveness, kindness, grace, mercy, love. No reason for any of these things but the goodness of God himself, the love of God, which it will take more than eternity to explain or wrap our minds around, I'm quite sure. So if we're looking at this book, we're looking at God doing it again, God forgiving people who don't deserve forgiveness, and that power of forgiveness and how he wants us to be forgiveness people. I remember when I first started in the church, I, I, was a, I was a worship leader. Now I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even pass the auditions for the worship team. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We'll, we'll call you. Don't call us, right? But back then I was the leader, and I didn't grow up in the church at all, and I didn't grow up in, in, in a world where forgiveness was anything that you would you just, that's not, a, that wasn't even a word I really heard. I, rem I don't remember hearing it. it it's a, a thing that you do when you're weak, I guess. You know, there, forgiveness was not the value, not the virtue. Getting back at people, being right, winning, showing them. That's what I can just feel it. I can feel it as I'm saying, I'll show you. That's right there. It's right there. That's, I grew up with that. You know, you want to be on top of the heap, not on the bottom. And you want to say whatever you need to say so that you win the day, win the argument. And if anybody says something wrong to you, well, then game on, right? You know, and the, the, the better person is the one with the better argument, the better fight, the better insult, that kind of thing. You know, you don't forgive. Oh, ugh. So I, I became a Christian, and I knew that forgiveness is a whole package. Like, God forgives you so that you can forgive others. 
And I, I knew pretty early on that you can't separate the two, even though I see many, many, many Christians attempting to do this all the time. I am forgiven by God, but I ain't forgiven you. And you even hear Jesus teach parables about this. More than one. That's how important forgiveness is. You hear him say things, almost overstating it, that if you're going to be forgiven, then you are going to forgive. That's how this is going to work. So I remember I was the worship director, and, you know, we're practicing. And I grew up with this, this value that you, you, you tell people like it is. You just, you just let them have it. You don't beat around the bush. You plow the bush over. You, you rip it out of the ground. And so we're practicing, and if somebody sang a wrong note, came in the wrong time, I would just point it out. Now, I learned and learned again and learned again that it's not what you say, but how you say it that matters. And at first, I didn't like that because I didn't want that to be true because that's not how it works for me, even though it is how it works for me because I was super sensitive to any criticism. So it was kind of one-way traffic for me, like it is for a lot of people that were like me and have that same kind of growing up. So I had to, I, you know, I, I would say something and somebody's feelings got hurt, and so I'd, I'd attempt an apology. I, I, I'll, talk to, I'll talk to you about apologies in, in a little bit, their value or lack thereof. But I attempted that apology, and, and it, it, forgiveness didn't happen. So after I had made this correction, not what you say, but how you say it, I hadn't said it the right way, and somebody got offended, and they stayed offended. Never again the relationship was strained always. That describes so many relationships in our families, in our church, where we work, in our world. There's just nothing new under the sun, and that is one of those things that's especially not new, right? However, it was a different situation, different member, different team, I think, by that time, because I went through worship team members pretty quickly at first. <laughs> I think I remember. There was one or two that stuck around, and I think it was one of those that stuck around. And I had done the same thing, wrong note or whatever, and I had corrected, you know, and I hadn't really gotten around to changing how I said what I said. And so another need for forgiveness, another need for an offense to be dealt with, for an apology. This time, however, it worked. This time, my apology was accepted, yeah, but that doesn't really mean anything. The real thing that means something happened, and that was forgiveness. So I was forgiven. And it takes two in that, you know, for reconciliation to happen, two different things, forgiveness and reconciliation. But I accepted that forgiveness. And I had never experienced anything like this this was really cool. This can happen. Like there can be something that happens, some set of words said that would split people apart and make them now enemies or frenemies or whatever. And that can just, that can disappear. 
that's what Jesus can do? I know that that's what he does for us, but now that can apply to every relationship we have. There's a possibility for that. That's what the church is supposed to be because I'm not seeing that in the church as much as I guess we're supposed to be seeing that in the church, and we're still not seeing it. We've had a problem with it ever since there's been a church. Christians not forgiving each other. But I experienced forgiveness, and I experienced it again and a couple other times, and this was revolutionary to me. And, I, and there's a joy to it. It was fun. You could breathe again. You ever, you ever have that feeling like when the way between you and someone else is clean again? And you're just like, oh, yes. And you're not taking credit for it. And the other person's not taking credit for it. You're both just happy that now there's a new situation here. Forgiveness. And the really cool thing is the offense is not remembered as much as the pardon. And you go back in time and you remember the situation and you remember that's when we got close. That's when we became friends. That's when I knew I could trust him. I could trust her. She could trust me. He could trust me. Oh, it's great stuff. And Micah talks about it. Micah talks about how this is who God is. And he doesn't need to be this way. He doesn't need to forgive us. He's not doing the right thing. He's doing a different thing that's right as well when he forgives us. And that difference is mind-blowing. It really is. It's the difference of grace, the difference of kindness, mercy, love, forgiveness. So we're looking at a bigger book today. Micah has seven chapters. We started with a bigger book with Hosea. That's the first of the 12 minor prophets. And there we looked at some approaches that we were going to use. We're going to look at a set of verses that provide us access into the book and then look at verses that accent the meaning of the book. And we have that worked out pretty nicely here in Micah. We're going to look at Micah 1, 2 through 7. And we'll see the problem. It's always bad news and then good news. It's always Good Friday and then Easter Sunday. It's always tears that last for the night and then joy that comes in the morning. And so we'll see that play out through verses 3, 4, chapter 3, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1 through 2, chapter 5, verse 2, 6, 8, 7, 7, and 7, 18 through 20. And I'll put all those on the screen as well. So it starts out this way. Micah chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. First, the bad news. First, God punishes sin. And then, inexplicably, remarkably, gloriously, he forgives sin. But first, let's establish the need for that forgiveness. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap 
and the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return." So you kind of have the, the greatest hits there from the prophets we've already looked at in terms of condemnation, words of warning, words of woe, a description of earned or deserved wrath. And you see the earthquake there. What's interesting is you see Judah and Samaria. Samaria means Israel for all practical purposes. So you see the northern kingdom, Israel, Samaria, and the southern kingdom, Judah. Jerusalem is in Judah, so sometimes it's called Jerusalem. And you see the two assailants, the two nations that sacked the two kingdoms, the divided kingdom. You see the Assyrians and the Babylonians both spoken against by this prophet. So he's covering all the ground. God punishes sin. He uses these other people groups to punish that sin, and then he punishes them for their cruelty, for their iniquity. All that is set up for us. And I think the feeling of it is expressed well by this verse near the beginning of chapter 3. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. So this is what Jesus experienced on the cross, the hiding of the face. God the Father is too holy to look upon sin. So when Jesus became sin for us on the cross, there's that separation that's amazing to consider. And it's part of the price that was paid for us by Jesus. And it takes up all the, the wars and the, the thousands slaughtered here or there in the various books of the Old Testament and, and all the, the, the expressions of God's wrath, all the deserved punishment from God, all of it focuses on one body, one specific human body hanging from a tree, a cross, outside one specific city, Jerusalem, at one specific time, Jesus. And this prophet points to that as much as any other, really more so in some ways, as you'll see. So with God, it's always first the bad news and then the good news, right? the establishment for the need for Good Friday. Like, God doesn't say, well, never mind when it comes to sin, because that would be unjust. And so, all this sin is dealt with by the sin bearer who God sends, his very own son, his one and only son. Boy, it really stands out when you're studying these books here at the end of the Old Testament. So, here comes some good news now. After all that, we get to chapter 4, and things change. Because always with God, things change. You want change in your life? That means you want God in your life. 
chapter 4, verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Suddenly there's hope, and there's hope for everyone, for everyone who would turn to God, who would follow him, who would renounce and repent and return. They're welcomed and invited. You get the sense of the invitation here in chapter 4. Hope for everyone. What hope? The hope for forgiveness the only hope for forgiveness that there is for everyone, and that's Jesus. And this prophet indisputably points to Jesus. Very specifically, in a verse that we read, well, every Christmas. Here it is, Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. There it is. Absolutely important key verse. We talk about it in one way or another every Advent, every Christmas, but the truth of it matters every day, every month, every week, every year, all the time. Because Christ was born, that means that the hope, the only hope for forgiveness was born. This is the hope we need. After this verse and kind of around this verse, you see great destruction described as well as great hope. So you see the mix here. They're both offered, both described. And in the midst of this, the prophet begins to communicate what God wants. And what God wants reflects who he is. And that brings us to a verse that many of us have made a memory verse in our lives. It's Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Whenever you see a verse like that, oh, well, that's what I want to know. What do, you, what do you want, God? What do you want? What do you require of me? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? There it is. I love these triads that show up in Scripture, these triangles, these trios, these trinities, if you will, that show up, and, and they, they tell the whole story. So what am I to do today? What's today about? I got to do the right thing. I got I to act justly. I got to not just think the right thing or have a, you know, a good intention of doing the right thing unless doing the wrong thing is more convenient, more profitable, then I'll do the wrong thing because, you know, I just want to get through the day. Nope, I'm going to do the right thing. I listened to a teacher, uh, I think just last week, and he's exhorting the people he's teaching saying this, how about for the next week, and I think I might have mentioned this before, how about for the next week you do all the things you know you ought to do when you ought to do them? Just for a week, try it out. Because nobody's done that, right? 
<laughs> Nobody's really done that. And by the end of the day, so many times you get to the end of the day, you're like, why didn't I do that? Why? I procrastinated. I, I, I just, I knew that this, today's the day. I told myself that. And I had every intention of doing the right thing. But then I didn't. And now I'll do it tomorrow. Act justly. Love kindness, it says there. The version I memorized this in says love mercy. Kindness is mercy. So that means you love forgiveness and grace and mercy and kindness and love. You're, you're all about that. All day long, wherever I go, this is going to be what I focus on how can I make this person I'm with, these people I'm working with, these people I'm standing next to, how can I make them experience kindness and grace and mercy and forgiveness? What could I do? What could I say? Because that's what I'm interested in. All of us know some people who are like this. They're not perfect, but they're into love. They like grace. Mercy is their thing. Forgiveness you know you're going to get it from this person or that person. Just call to mind some people you know in your life. Now, are you one of those people? That's a good question, right? Picture the 10 people that know you best, and you were to ask them questions. Probably not a good idea. <laughs> but how much of a forgiveness person do you think I am? How kind do you think I am? How much into grace and mercy do you think I am? Not how religious am I. Not how Christian do I sound, you know, or look, but how kind am I? How, how accessible is the grace of God through me? Like, I know you're a Christian, but can I get to Christ through you? Ask people if that's how they see you, because that's what God wants. His people are forgiveness people. His people love kindness. Ah, I just love it. What? How can I be kind today? I just love it. I love kindness. I know there's lots of days when I'm not even thinking about being kind. I'm just trying to get what I think I need to get through the day. You know, whatever gets you through the night, it's all right. You know? That's why I wasn't, that's why I'm not on the worship team now. To, to follow up on an earlier point there. Yeah. It's not all right, whatever gets you through. And it's not getting you through the night. It's messing up your night and messing up your life. Act justly. Love kindness and walk humbly with your God. Isn't it beautiful? And it's here expressed to us in the same book where we're given the location of the birth of our Savior, Bethlehem prophesied, true, promise kept. And the next chapter, here's how I want you to live in this book full of promises, promises that I established the need for by showing you what God could have done, what he by all rights ought to have done, and just wipe us out, tread on us, stomp us out. But instead, he does the opposite. And we can't explain why except to say that he's good. That he loves us because we don't earn it. We don't merit it. It's his merit. He's the one who merited it. Christ, that's what we just sang about in that lovely new song that we sing.
Ah, it's good stuff. We talked about mercy the first of the 12 sermons that focus on these 12 prophets. And here's the definition. Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. So the last chapters feature more destruction followed by more salvation, more condemnation followed by more compassion from God. And in the midst of this, we have a, a great, another verse that I've put on my list of verses to memorize, a, a great verse that just helps us to know how, how do I live? Because sometimes it's hard. It's hard to act justly. It's hard to love kindness. It's hard to walk humbly with my God. That brings us to verse 7. But as for me, so what does God require of you? That was answered in 6, 8. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. That's what I'm looking. I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. I'm going to wait for God to help me work this thing out. In the situations early on in my church life where I saw forgiveness, where I received the forgiveness of others, I know that part of that process was that the person giving me forgiveness was tied in close with God. And, and listening to God. And I knew that the forgiveness was given me, not because I'm a nice guy after all. Come on, it's me. Who won't forgive me? Just about anyone, <laughs> right? It wasn't that at all. It wasn't that I had somehow worked it out. No, no, the person giving me that forgiveness, that work, that took, that was acceptable to me to receive, well, that person was close to God. That person was doing this verse. I'm going to wait for God. A lot of times we talk about this and we think that we're waiting for God for provision, you know, financial provision, uh, physical healing, a provision of physical healing. I'm going to wait for God. That all is good, but more important is forgiveness. More important is relationship, relationship with God and relationship with each other. When it comes to my relationships, I'm going to wait for you. That means I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do what you say. I'm not going to rush ahead. I'm not going to take a shortcut. I'm not going to do something else. Seek someone else. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to wait for you, God. That's how you live if you live for him. And this is how you see him if you want to see him through the lens of Scripture. These last three verses in Micah. Micah 7, 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. We were the ones being tread underfoot earlier. Remember that? The same word, tread. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You, Lord, will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Oh, just look at those words. Take them in. Pardoning, passing over the transgressions. He's not angry. 
He could be, but he says in his word that he's not going to be. He's not holding on to that. That's what we do when we won't forget. We hold on to it, and we won't let it go. But that's not God at all. He's a God of forgiveness, and so he puts it away. He puts it all away. He sends it away. He releases it. He says, it is finished. And when he says, it is finished, it is finished. <laughs> Hallelujah. Yes. I've talked a little bit about my diminished view of the apology, I think. And you may not agree. But I grow less and less convinced of the value of the apology as we apologize, as we use that word. Because I've seen it. You know, when we say or hear the words, I'm sorry, often, more often than there ought to be, than it ought to be, we, we, we see that the the offended party files the offense away for future reference so that when needed, it can be retrieved and refreshed in all its power to make the case when it comes to a new offense or a new argument. And I'm sorry is somehow part of that package. You know this is the case. You know that you've gotten one of these apologies or given one of these apologies when you hear words like this. This is just like the time you fill in the blank. <laughs> right? Or remember that one time you said fill in the blank. Or I'll never forget that. Whatever it is, that word, that, that thing you did, that word you didn't say, that thing you didn't, I'll never forget, never. If somebody commits an offense twice, then you get to say this. You always do that. You always say that. Or, as the case may be, you never do it. You never say it. And then the third time, you can say, like I always said, you always do it. All you need is two for you always. So somehow in this, we've lost track of what God does. Imagine if God did what we do. He doesn't. If you seek his forgiveness on the basis of his son, Jesus Christ, then that forgiveness has been purchased entirely. It is not a lease you've signed or something else you have to make regular payments on. It's sold. It's bought. It's over. The deal is done. Or as Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. That's how God does it. Thank God for how God does it. Amen? Amen. We can learn a lot from God. Amen? Amen. So in my attempts to learn from him, I've noticed situations in the church, in our church. I won't name names, and I won't give away any details. And I'll talk about two different situations. So here's the first. I remember this event where a person was offended, and an apology was given. And the, the, the person receiving the apology 
made sure that all of us knew that records were being maintained. Right. Now, maybe sometimes this is a wise approach. I know those who defend it would say so, but more and more, the older I get, I guess I should say, the less I see the value of this retention, this record-keeping, this scoreboard. Right after that first event, there was another event. Different people, different circumstances, same need for forgiveness. And an apology was given. But this apology was heard by others, witnessed by others, and the general complaint was that the apology was not good enough. That wasn't a good enough apology. That was not good. What kind of apology was that? And yet, somehow, the two people involved let it go. They put it away. They put it all away. They sent it away. They released it. Forgiveness happened anyway. And I realized, I don't even know what these apology things are. I think half the time we apologize, we don't mean it. And maybe more than half the time we say, I accept your apology, we definitely don't mean it. Now, maybe that's because I live with teenage daughters <laughs> who will say to me, sorry, whatever. And I can just feel the, the lack of substance in that apology. However, I think most apologies are like this. We think that apologies matter. We think that it matters if we say, I'm sorry for my sin to God. But we mean it in the same way. We're not sorry for our sin. We're sorry we got caught. We like our sin. That's why we were doing it. We need something better than, you know, a, a transaction of apologies. I'm sorry, okay. No. In fact, I had one parent counsel me when we first got our children. We first were, we're, were new parents, and she talked to me. And she says, I never let my kids apologize. I never let them say I'm sorry. I make them say this, forgive me. And I never forgot that. It doesn't work. I mean, <laughs> it does. <laughs> it works for me, you know. I try to get there, but then the drama takes the thing away, and, and God is good, and he's sovereign over the whole thing. And, you know, he plays a bigger role in their lives than I ever will, and I'm grateful for that. Yeah, the apology. We overvalue it. Um, all that matters is the forgiveness. So I want to ask you, you know, is there, is there something you need to put away? And don't feel pressured by this. Don't feel the typical religious shame, guilt thing that you feel that we always, you know, just, we, we, we major on this in the church. We get religious about stuff. Instead, Understand that if you're forgiven by God, he's making you into a forgiveness person. The forgiveness will happen. Your faith is real. Jesus is real. What he did for you is real. Then forgiveness for real is going to come through you. 
forgiveness. You're, you're, you're going to get it because you got it, and you're going to give it. And maybe you're kind of caught between that. And so, instead of feeling guilty or ashamed or kind of, oh, burdened by it, be curious. Be enthusiastic. Look for how he's changing you, how he's getting you to a place where you will forgive. Now, what if, what if somebody really, really hurt me? What if somebody, I mean, you know, really did something, said something, and you know, I was really just hijacked by that thing, blindsided by it? Well, forgiveness takes away their power to hurt you anymore. Or it takes away the power of the situation that hurt you. It takes away the power of that situation to hurt you in the same way. Forgiveness sets the prisoner free. You are that prisoner. Maybe in this, you need to look at forgiveness in a new light. Forgiveness is a show of strength, not a show of weakness. That's why God does it, according to the Bible. God forgives because he is good and he is strong. It's the ultimate expression and demonstration of strength. Maybe you need to understand that forgiveness is about one. Reconciliation is about two. I know we can't paint every situation with the same brush, but if we can get to forgiveness, it's worth it. Forgiveness takes one. That's you. Reconciliation takes two. It's not always a good idea. You have to work that out with people that can help you. And don't automatically come to the decision that reconciliation is not what God wants. But automatically come to the decision that forgiveness is what he wants because that's what he says over and over again. And he doesn't say it to, to choke us, to strangle us emotionally. He says it because this is how you'll be free. This is how you'll experience all that I purchased for you through my death on the cross. And it's a wonderful thing. It's glorious. We just celebrated Easter, and Easter is set up by what we celebrate during Advent and Christmas. And what do we celebrate there? The birth of Jesus Christ. Why do we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ? Because that's the birth of our only hope for forgiveness. That's what we celebrate. And so I asked the worship team, not that I could join the worship team or to give me a mic. I didn't ask that. I asked the worship team if they would sing, lead us in singing a Christmas song. Because this is a Christmas book. The book of Micah, just because of that one verse, Micah 5.2, is a Christmas book, also because of the hope that's offered to us, the hope of forgiveness. Now, this is not an old song. This is a new song. It's only five years old, written in 2018 by Matt Marr, called Hope for Everyone. Let me pray. Father, in Jesus' name, as we see those words on the screen, as we've seen them there, they're amazing words. They speak about your compassion, your goodness, how you, you're not going to be angry forever. You're, you're not. 
that anger was, was satisfied. Your wrath was paid for by the death of your own son on the cross. It says in your word that you delight in steadfast love. It says that you're not going to tread on us. You're going to tread on our sins, and you're going to cast them into the depths of the sea. Oh, thank you for this, Lord. Some of us need to get a hold of this hope. Some of us don't quite have a grip on it. Help us, Lord. You have truly forgiven us in Christ. We have what we need most, forgiveness, when we have Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Thank you, Lord. So, Lord, we celebrate this not just during Easter, not just during Advent and at Christmas. It's something we celebrate every day. We join the angels with their proclamation. We join the announcement of the king and the joy that follows that. We, we celebrate this, this good news, this hope for everyone, this hope for forgiveness. Lord, thank you. Help us to adore you every day. Help us to rejoice in you every day. Help us to see you as our light in the darkness all the time. There's nothing darker than unforgiveness. Shine your light now into our hearts and release us. Set all of us who would be prisoners of unforgiveness free. Now, Lord, in your name, Jesus, we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.